as the Buddha was inviting the people of his time to turn their hearts in the direction of freedom, he was very clear in saying that if it wasn't possible to free your heart from entanglement, if it wasn't possible to free your heart, I wouldn't teach what I teach. I wouldn't ask you to practice the way I'm asking you to practice. He said, just because it is possible to free the heart, there arises this body of of teachings, there arises the Dhamma of liberation. (coughs) And it's offered, it's offered open-handedly for the welfare of beings. So he's saying, this is possible because I've experienced this. And in a sense, he he's, was inviting his followers to take a chance, to trust him, to go on faith. And you know, you're here because you have some measure of trust in this practice, even if it was a hard day, even if you're having second and third thoughts at this point in the retreat some measure of resonance with the Dhamma of liberation, some deep knowing of your own heart's capacity to be free is part of what brought you to be sitting in this room here, here right now. And in a certain sense, you know, we, 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 uh, we keep going on faith. We, 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 we don't know what we don't know. Not just faith in the historical Buddha, but a faith that grows as we practice, that becomes verified through our own experience. Faith in the, the lineage of 2,600 years of beings who have kept these practices alive because of their love of truth, because of their, their deep devotion um, to Dhamma. And I, I heard some of this today in the practice meetings, just some of you feeling, even though, yeah, you might be quite challenged, feeling real gratitude that Spirit Rock even exists. You know, real gratitude for the incredible preciousness of these teachings. And, you know, with all, all the waves, all the ups and downs that are common to most retreats, many of you are tasting moments of deeper peace. Many of you are, are experiencing you know, even, even little glimpses of what happens when the thinking mind begins to settle down and you're resting in the activity of awareness. You're, you're, you're tasting awake awareness through your own experience. And I do appreciate that we are in the, really the stream of blessings of the lineage. You know, we're not separate from, from the lineage or your consciousness isn't separate on any level from the truth of what the Buddha came to see so clearly 2,600 years ago. And in a certain way, we, we rest in the grace of this. We're really receiving such a gift in this way. Those of you who have sat with monastics may know the, 
just the practice of puja, of, of making offerings, of honoring that which is worthy of honor, of developing a sense of, of reverence, of respect, of, of real um, care. It's a heart connection with the practice. You might feel this kind of reverence or honoring when you bow at the end of your, of your practice period. I remember the first time I set foot on this land, maybe 14, probably about 14 years ago now, and just feeling, oh, wow, you know, this is very well cared for. Something important is happening here. There's a reverence. You might know a sense of reverence if you stepped into a monastery with people <laughs> who have given their lives to, to these practices, just a sense of us, the sense of the sacred, a sense of touching something that is timeless, that is um, deep, deeply, very deeply of the heart. Some of you may tune into this feeling of, of reverence if you go down to the gratitude hut. And sometimes you know this if you're in the company of a dying person or if you're present for a birth, a baby being born, yeah? or, or on top of a mountain. All these different experiences that awaken the heart to the sacredness, the preciousness of how it is to be alive and aware. The Dhamma is described, I think we chant this some, I, I love some of these words that are used to describe the natural truth, to describe what is actually, you know, everything we're doing is a finger pointing to the moon. The words are just a finger pointing to the, the moon, but really described as being, being visible here and now. Timeless. Inviting investigation, leading inward to the source. Leading inward to the source, to be realized by the wise. And these words ring through in a way that's, oh yeah, I know what that means. Do you feel that? It's refreshing to me. Inviting investigation, leading inward to the source. Nothing about that is about the acquisition of anything. It's about... Um, very, very, very deep listening, recognizing the word that Philip used many times last night, recognition of, of the way things are, of what is here, of what is here that we move, we move so quickly and so we, we miss it. And so the, the path and the practice invites us over and over again into a deeper trust, into resting in something something larger into uh, how it is to trust the moment enough to at least intend (laughs) to meet the moment with less contention, less interference, to be willing to actually get up close and intimate with, with things exactly as they are in your experience, with you exactly where you are. And so we keep saying this in different ways. And we, the four of us over and over again are saying this in different ways, that this, this path and the process of waking up is a radical reorientation. Like any ideas we have about what awakening is, 
just like, you might as well just put them down. I mean, you know, you hear of things. There's, there's less stress. There's less dukkha. We cause less harm. There's more patience. There's more wisdom. There's more equanimity. But realization and insight, it happens completely spontaneously. You know, we, we can't will it. We can do our best to create conditions of a balanced mind, conditions that invite insight to arise, but we, we can't will it and we definitely can't think our way into it. So in this practice, we are, we are really moving from an over-reliance on the cognitive functioning to uh, orienting in immediacy, to, to orienting and staying connected with the directive experience of awareness that's right here, right now. I was remembering sitting a three-month retreat quite a number of years ago now um, at our sister center on the East Coast, Insight Meditation Society, and I was having this repetitive dream for the weeks before I got on the plane to leave for the retreat. <coughs> and I was having a dream that I was at a wake. You know, when someone dies, how there's a wake. But I was, it was my own wake in my dream. So over and over again, I was going through this process of being, being at my own wake in my dream world. And it was kind of intense. And I recognized that on some level my psyche was coming to terms with the truth that I, was, that I was making a leap of faith to practice for three months. I was going into the unknown. And on some level, I knew that I wasn't going to come back the same, quite the same person I'd gone in as. You know, I knew that some part of me was going to die. And yeah, some part, of, some part we, we outgrow. You know, we outgrow um, what is too small for us over time. But it's like this continued invitation (laughs) to trust. Krishnamurti talks about the, the freedom from the known. Because the known can be predictable and cozy and insulate you in a certain way. But uh, it's like freedom from the known. What else is here? What else is here to be revealed? And all of the fetters, all of the attachments, all of the, um, all of the biggies that occlude the awareness are based on an over-reliance, an over-reliance on the cognitive. So we're moving from this thought-based reality to a sense-based reality. a sense-based reality. And, excuse me, okay, back on. And as we, uh, as we live into this reality, the quality of sincerity, which has been mentioned in this hall, the quality of sincerity is your through line. 
The quality of sincerity is what helps there to be a kind of steadfastness in the commitment to the practice that allows for a deepening. Sincerity as a sense of being earnest, being genuine. Sincerity lives in the heart, being heartfelt. You know how it is when, th- when you do something that's insincere? You know how that feels? Like a little bit false, not quite lined up with your truth? You know, sincere, sincere means I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm in. I'm in in a way that I'm, where I'm connected. I'm connected in my heart. And it's important to know for your own practice what helps you be sincere. Does it help you be sincere when you remember what really brought you here? The deeper reasons? You know, something that helps me be sincere is to reflect upon some of my teachers who really touch and inspire me. Because, you know, like I I think of some of the people who have been so powerful in my own practice, and they didn't just genetically end up being so wise. It's just because of the Dhamma. It's because of their beautiful, beautiful commitment to practice. Sincerity is a really a heartfelt respect for for the Dhamma. And sometimes sincerity looks like surrendering into the moment, softening, opening. Sometimes sincerity looks like standing firm. I'm gonna stick with the schedule. Even though judging mind is going bananas, I'm going to stand firm in my intention to practice metta. It can look many, many different ways the quality of sincerity. Can you feel it? How does it feel? You don't actually have to answer this. We're in silence. But, you know, in your body, do you know the feeling in your body when you feel sincere? When you mean it? Can you feel that for a moment right now? I feel my heart when I feel sincere. I feel connected when I feel sincere. I feel purposeful not scattered all over the place. Some of you know of the the people called the wayfinders, indigenous um, Polynesian peoples who were and are, it's good to see these practices um, being reclaimed and and revitalized really, who um, who could sail and can sail between the islands hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. So, you know, (coughs) a boat setting course from one island to another island with no GPS, you know, no maps in the way that we might be used to thinking of maps. Um, You know, the way that they learn to do this is by a really deep sensing of the stars and of the sea and of the winds and of the air to teach, uh, to teach members of the community to do this. The, these children were, were, would be born and they'd be put in tidal pools. Imagine putting a little baby in a tidal pool. So they, got, they kind of begin to sense the, the water's rhythms and the water's currents really as, as part of their, of their deep experience. And then when, when they, as these people... Um, grow and, and develop, they are, they become able to sit in the ocean in a canoe and feel the different swells that are moving underneath the hull 
read the stars, and the swells they know are refraction patterns from islands that they can't see with their eyes, but they know where they are, far beyond the horizon. And so these, these, these people set sail, you know, and f- from on one level, how do they do this? You know, how do they know where they're going? You know, they know where they're going because they're awake and they're responding and they're sensing and they're trusting. It's not, it's not an um, uncalculated kind of thing to do. They're trained in it. They're so attuned to the energy of the ocean. And, a, and in some ways, this practice is a bit of a similar spirit. <laughs> we come on retreat, we're in. We have no idea what's going to happen. But you know you have the, to- the tools to find your way and to move in the direction of deepening peace and understanding. Okay, so you know how it is to feel sincere. Do you know how it is, too, to have moments? Have you had moments on this retreat where it's kind of like, yeah, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) I'm here, but, you know, whatever. Like those moments where where, uh, there's a bit of the, the motivation and purpose kind of tanks. Have you had those moments today? Have you had those moments every day? It happens. It happens for most of us on retreat. It's really natural to be going along, practicing whatever, um, and sometimes it shakes. You know that sense of purpose and motivation will shake, especially when there's difficult emotions that arise. Especially when this retreat's harder than the last retreat you sat. Um, and sometimes the practice can just start to feel a little dry. You know, so we need to reconnect with our sincerity. We need to reconnect with um, our capacity to find our way in this ocean of life. So, so the heartfulness is so, is so important. Years ago, this was about 18 years ago, right now I uh, was going through a time in my practice where it felt, it just felt dried up. I was practicing mindfulness of breathing, but it just felt stale and I, I uh, I had some different teachers, but I, there wasn't one teacher I was working with in a really close way at that time. And I kind of just come and sit and meditate and just be with the breathing. It felt dull, it felt boring, and I was feeling ambivalent about if I wanted to do my formal practice or not. And I was talking to a friend of mine with a, with a practice of many, many, many years, an elder, an elder in our community, and I said, I'm just feeling kind of flat in my practice, you know, not that thrilled. And she said, Erin, I think you need to go spend some time with a saint. And I said, I can't go spend time with a saint. I'm in college. I'm working full time. Like, I can't just take off and go hang out with a saint. You know, great idea. And, and but I, I heard the deeper, the deeper instruction she was giving me, which is that I needed to get inspired. I needed to uh, feel the life in my practice again. And I just started kind of, <laughs> opening myself to, okay, if I can't hang out with a saint, you know, are there any realized folks or, or um, just kind of streams of awakening that, that, that are here for me? It's kind of just a creative opening. But I kind of started asking, 
asking to get some juice in my practice. And what ended up happening for me was, was Deepama. Some of you know Deepama, really just highly realized teacher to many of our teachers, uh, a phenomenal East Indian woman who had gone through so much suffering. And the suffering really led her to the door of the Dhamma. And she was like a duck to water. Yeah, she just, and there's a picture of her down in the gratitude hut. She's like, she kept saying, in my mind, there's only love and emptiness. And I just started this, this getting to know Deepama on some level, not in body, just in spirit. There's a sense of, oh, just, just tuning into her image, her stories, <laughs> her heart began to hook up my heart again to the practice in a way that I needed, in a way that was important for me. And, and just the incredible journey of her life and inspiration of her life led me to actually get excited about mindfulness of breathing again. It's part of why these, these whatever practices of, of puja, of honor, of, of reverence, of love, Whatever, in whatever way this, these, these qualities come alive for you, they're nourishing, they're a support to the path. The path needs our whole heart. And so really what I'm talking about is, is the presence of faith. It's a word that often needs to be revitalized because the word faith can bring up a lot of old religious stuff. I'm talking about what you put your heart upon. And I'm talking about what matters to you because nothing in the practice is going to really flourish without faith. Faith is the seed. It's the seed that is planted. And just like a plant can't grow without a seed, um, neither can the practice. But it takes more than just putting a seed in the ground, right? It takes sun. It takes water. It takes care which is what you're doing here. You're, cult- you're cultivating the many seeds of intention that you've planted, ones you know of and ones that you don't, don't know of. And we are continually one moment after the next opening to the unknown. You know, nothing in this path is prefabricated. It's not prefabricated. Anything can happen at any time. That's the truth of our lives. We just live in these delusions that it's not. You know, and then something happens and oh wow, this is yeah, this is true. I hadn't expected that. Anything can happen at any time. And what we're doing here together, it's good practice for living well. I don't know of a better way to live well than living a Dhamma life. It's the best life I've found. It's also good practice for dying because the journey of, um, of taking leave of this life is also a journey into the unknown. It's an opportunity to open to what Philip was speaking to last night, the dimension of who we are that is not defined by clinging. You know, the mind likes to be familiar and the dying process will never actually be familiar in a certain way. The Zen teacher Jan Chosen Bay 
She says, if we practice stepping into the unknown, moment by moment, hour by hour, year by year, millions of times, then death is just the next step into the unknown. It loses its terror. We're practicing stepping into the unknown. And when there's a confidence in how to do that, fear can begin to settle a bit more. So, And now there's a, there's a way, and we've been teaching you how to aim and sustain vitaka and vichara, your attention, breathing, body. We've been teaching how to investigate different aspects of your, of your experience. You know, and there's also a time to just kind of put it all down and simply rest, simply be available for the Dharma to let your practice be continuous, but very simple, very uncomplicated, because there's all these sneaky ways that we start practicing mindfulness to not feel certain things. Have you ever had that happen? A tough time. I'm just going to throw some meta on this. It's going to make it a lot less painful. Or as if, if I'm mindful, then I'm not going to really be as angry as I am. You know, that, that can happen. <laughs> And so, and so really what we're doing is we're stabilizing the heart in a, in a moment-to-moment, continuous way so that we are available, available for, for the deeper intelligence that, that, that can move through us. This is a poem called The Wound of Love by Maya Luna. Today, I gave up on healing my trauma. I gave up on practicing the skills to become whole. Today, I gave up on evolving into that ever-elusive, better version of myself. Today, I submitted to the wound of love. I stopped pointing at it looking at it, soothing it, tweaking it, finessing it, fixing it, hiding it, polishing it, I stopped this game of separation. I crawled inside the wound and spread it open. I decided to wear it like a gown. I accepted my total and utter failure to be anything else but me. She's saying, today I submitted to the wound of love, and she's stopping messing with it. <coughs> which, was, which was all that, those pieces that Philip brought up on our opening night. She's renouncing, fixing, judging, and comparing in a way that really honors, honors life, honors her path.
It's a good thing. It's a good thing that we're not satisfied (coughs) with our ordinary wretched conditioning because it is wretched. It's like takes so much energy, all the becoming, all the selfing, all the grasping, all the rejecting, all the propping up, you know, the story of, of, of who we think, who we think we are. And, and um, some of how we mature on the path is just this, this softening, the productivity <laughs> of becoming, softening the tension. And it takes a, um, a deeper ground of holding in the heart. If you have a fist, if you wrap your fist tightly and you're trying to open your fingers, prying your fingers open, you know how that feels. Like, I'm just gonna, you know, pry myself out of this aversion. I'm just gonna pry myself out of this jealousy. <laughs> you know, it could feel like that sometimes. And you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to pry open a closed fist. It's hard to pry open a closed heart. Prying isn't so effective. But if you think about it, if, if this fist could, could land in the other hand, the other hand as being a warmth, a support, a contact, it's like, oh, that the fist can just begin to relax and soften on its own. <coughs> and that happens because there's, there's a ground. There's contact. There's just a feeling of connectedness and care. And it's a little like that in our hearts. It's not helpful to pry your heart open so the meta can enter. It's helpful just to touch kindly, gently, repeatedly. So the heart can naturally, the heart-mind can naturally begin to open to something more um, present, more responsive, more real. is the journey. It's the same. Uh, it's not so different than the journey of, of the Buddha. And the journey always involves suffering and faith. And I'll, I'll say a little more in a moment about the relationship between faith and suffering. Because, I mean, faith doesn't come about just from concentration or just from reading Dharma books. Um, or from just hanging out with Dharma friends or from praying. You know, faith, faith really happens from suffering. It happens from suffering. Here's the, here's a, this is a little bit long, but it, it's, it's good, so I'm going to read most of it. This is a, a piece, some of you know, the poet Mark, Mark Nepo. Have you heard of his poems? Yeah, beautiful poet. He's had a really a heck of a journey, and he he's, was interviewed in this article, and he was speaking about his experience with cancer, metastasized cancer, a brain tumor, and a, a tumor that appeared on his, on his back and in his ribs. And the interviewer says to him, he's saying, you know, Mark, you write that at a certain point in the heat of your own struggle, he wrote, faith is no longer a construct, but some vital tool as urgent as an oar in the ocean or a prayer in the modern world. As urgent as an oar in the ocean or a prayer in the modern world. And he said, what's the nature of your faith? 
And so Mark shares a bit, and he, he says, there was a difficult but revelatory moment in my life two weeks after a rib was removed from my back. I was throwing up from chemo every 20 minutes. It was oral medicine, and I couldn't keep it down. And I was with my former wife and one of my oldest friends. The three of us were in a Holiday Inn outside New York City. And at five in the morning, I'm sitting on the floor exhausted. And my former wife, in her desperation and anger, blurted out, where is God? You know that feeling? In in, in those, those times when you've been going through a dark night of the soul? Times of feeling really, really alone or desperate, just having, where is God? He says, I don't know where it came from, but I whispered here, right here. I saw very clearly in that moment that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. The sun was coming up, and somewhere else in that Holiday Inn, two people were making love, and further away somebody was being born. I've spent the last 28 years inquiring into what came to me in that moment. He goes on to say, I think faith is a felt understanding of the currents of life and not painting the whole world with what we're going through. A great image for this was what I learned from watching a baby duck in a lake. I was sitting on the shore and this baby duck was curled up into itself asleep, bobbing on the water. I'd never seen such an amazing example of trust. It made me think about our first experiences of swimming and how when we're first put in the water, we start to sink. And the more we fight it, the worse it is. But if we relax and let ourselves sink a little bit, then the buoyancy holds us up. And the analogy is the same with the waters of existence. Not to minimize what we're going through, but if we can relax and settle into a couple of inches, then the mystical buoyancy of existence will hold us up. It's not going to remove what we have to go through. But I think the metaphor is that those two inches are the most difficult to travel. Faith is the trust in those two inches, knowing that everything isn't broken just because we are. Two inches. Two inches, even a millimeter. (laughs) Even a millimeter is good. Two inches or a millimeter of just beginning to settle into that which holds us. To open to the truth of your experience without fiddling with it, meddling with it, trying to make it be better or go away. You know, those, those two inches might be the intention to be kind. <coughs> those two inches might be just following the schedule for part of the morning. Those two inches might be starting over. Those two inches might be reconnecting with the sincerity that brought you here. It's really like that. I mean, it's kind of like awakening is just even moving over a mill. two inches is great, even moving over a millimeter. You know, from all of the places that you're addicted to, used to. Just, just a millimeter. 
we begin to see a different view. That's all it takes, is just a little bit of space. And awareness allows for that. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what happens as the practice continues and develops. There's a teaching many of you have heard, dependent co-arising or dependent origination, which is about the genesis of suffering. We're really good about talking about suffering in Buddhism. <laughs> and kind of how, it's good actually, because we gotta, we gotta know suffering to know the end of it. Unfortunately, the Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about and pointing toward the end of suffering. Uh, you know, the teaching of the, kind of the genera- genesis of suffering, how suffering comes into being. And then um, the teaching of liberative, it's called liberative dependent arising or transcendent dependent arising, which is a teaching of how the mind is transformed as the practice deepens over, over time. So it starts with suffering. Everybody in this room knows suffering. And the teaching is that suffering is a supportive condition for the development of faith. It's actually really important because if our suffering has no purpose, uh, you know, we just lose heart immediately. Suffering not only is the supportive condition for the development of faith, it's, it's also from suffering and really knowing suffering. It, that's what gives, makes a depth of compassion possible as well. So, so it's important to feel like your suffering in, in some way can be used as a vehicle to grow your compassion and to, to, deepen, to deepen your faith. Suffering is a comportive, supportive condition for the development of faith. Was there some measure of suffering that brought you here? Now, even if it's not a big life event, but just this niggling feeling of things not quite being, not quite being able to settle fully, things not quite being okay, like walking around with a rock in your shoe or broccoli between your teeth, just a little bit off. So suffering. From suffering comes faith, but it's not enough just to encounter the suffering. Because if you just encounter it, there's not a sense of that which is beyond. For faith to arise, there needs to be the awareness of the, of the, of the suffering. Because when there's awareness of the suffering, there's usually a, a desire to not suffer. There's a seeing of a need for a liberative path. And then there needs to be an encounter with a teaching that basically proclaims or is a liberative path. So you've got that covered. <laughs> you know you're suffering. You're aware when the suffering's here. And you are actively practicing a liberative path. So these, these teachings are beautiful. You know, the way that the Buddha put together, and you know, somebody was talking about the list, but the way the Buddha put together these teachings, it's like, the paradox, right, of, of it, the teachings are that, that we live in a lawful universe. You know, you don't have to believe in gravity. If I lift up the clock, it's going to drop. It's lawful. And we have these natural laws. But at the same time, 
an. What happens, anything can happen at any time. You know, because it's not up to us in a particular way. So like we're, we're, we're inside of that paradox all the time. And so suffering is the proximate cause. Proximate means, means uh, close to. Um, suffering is the proximate cause for the development of faith. And as faith grows, there becomes a gladdening of the heart. A gladdening of the heart. And as the heart becomes more contented, more gladdened by the practice, we become interested in the practice. There's a presence of that gladness, pomoja. I think Philip was talking about pomoja. And, and then there's the, um, the, we become interested in the practice. And when you, you know, the feeling of when you're actually interested in your meditation, you know, the difference between a walking meditation where you are so not interested and one where you actually are, night and day, when we become interested in the practice, there's a, there's a joy in that interest. It's called pity. And this is a real turning point in the practice because the practice begins kind of carrying its own weight. It's, it's going along on its own. There's a, there's a natural momentum that starts to happen when, when pity is, is there. There's a measure of delight in the practice. And as we're interested, things begin to calm down. Things begin to settle. Often we hear from folks who are having their first experiences of meditative calm, you know, I think something might be wrong. It's different to meditate when you're not working on a psychological project in yourself. It's different to meditate when you stop being your own self-improvement project. Calm is beautiful, but it can be a little different at first. Not as much going on. So as, as, as tranquility or calmness begins to happen, there is a deeper happiness in the practice. There's a deeper contentment. And this is moving in the direction, not of sense gratification, but a kind of happiness that comes from presence, that comes from the, the harmonizing of the body and the mind. I, I still remember this moment. This was a three-month retreat at IMS, and it was before IMS had done their remodel, and I was given this little room. Those of you who have practiced there know the rooms that were in the gym. It's like this old carpet. It smelled a little bit moldy, and I had this one dirty window up top. This would be something that, you know, so many people would look at, ah, oh, it's like grungy, grungy. Who wants to spend time there? But I remember this one retreat just sitting in there and feeling... I, I didn't want another thing in the world. I was so content sitting there on that, that hard wooden chair with the little desk and my cot. I didn't want anything. And it wasn't because the room was so glorious. It was because the mind wasn't being directed by greed for a little while. It's like, oh, contentment. This is why renunciation makes sense. It's beautiful. So there's, there's a happiness that begins to happen. And as the happiness comes in and, and, and we begin enjoying the practice, that's when samadhi grows. So according to this teaching, the samadhi doesn't happen by pushing it. It's not nibbana or bust. I've got to get back to that breath, tightening up, tightening up. 
<laughs> that's, that's actually like the opposite. <laughs> the samadhi comes in when we begin to relax and the natural dharma energy comes forth. We enjoy the practice. That's, that's you know, samadhi comes from enjoyment. And, um, and in this practice, as the samadhi comes in and the happiness comes in, the mind becomes less and less troubled by the hindrances. When the samadhi is quite strong, there's not a lot of room for the hindrances to take root. Of course, that's not liberation. That's just because the mind is concentrated. It's conditioned. And samadhi is a supportive condition for what we call knowledge and vision. This is where the, the insight starts to grow. I actually love the words knowledge and vision. Knowledge, not in the sense of information, but in the sense of seeing things as they are. And vision, if you think about the experience of seeing, you know, seeing is, is uh, direct, it's immediate. That's how insight happens. Seeing isn't a process of thinking. The mind will go into um, panya and perception and thinking, but the actu- actual seeing is just that, moment by moment by moment. That's, that's kind of the, the experiential way that, that insight happens. So knowledge and vision is a deepening of our experiential understanding. It's not, again, it's, it's not a big cognitive thing. It's experiential. And as knowledge and vision and insight grows, um, that's a supportive condition for the arising of disenchantment. And disenchantment is um, kind of when you start to outgrow stuff. Disenchantment is when, when you know that another pleasant experience is not going to get rid of the core of the discontent that you feel. Like that the next trip, the next meal, the next movie, the next fill in the blank isn't going to do it. And it's really was kind of where you've seen enough that you're not buying into the endless pursuit. Very powerful because our society is, en- is enchanted with so many promises that do not deliver. Just over and over and over. So we get, we get a disenchanted nibbida, no longer enchanted with the spell that all this stuff out here is going to create lasting peace. And disenchantment is a supportive cause for the developing of dispassion, viraga. Dispassion um, is like when the mind becomes less pulled the mind becomes less pulled out. They're the kind of the, the pleasant isn't, it just doesn't do it for you in the same way. And the unpleasant isn't quite the same level of not doing it for you. It's when, when Philip was speaking about the neutral Vedana, this passion is kind of resting more and more and in a, the neutral actually becomes preferable to the big hits of gratification. The mind becomes clearer. There's a presence of immo- immov- immovability Kind of the felt sense is moving from being very invested in everything out here to divesting of it. A deep inward <laughs> movement and stilling, fading. And as we become 
disenchanted, you know, there can be an idea that you're going to like turn into a no personality gray Buddhist blob. <laughs> but that's not what happens unless you think we're gray Buddhist blobs. <laughs> it's not what happens. What happens is that there's the space in the ground to become re-enchanted, for our lives to become re-passioned from a much deeper place, from a place where you can really be you. (laughs) So as dispassion, as dispassion um, unfolds, there's just deeper and deeper levels of understanding that uh, that um, are revealed. It's not so much that we get, but that are revealed. And I just I love that bit of that map because it's it's a way of demystifying awakening, and it's a way just of giving you a sense of the journey that this actually goes somewhere. And everything I'm talking about these these aren't just these aren't just for people who have been meditating in caves for 30 years. Not at all. This is all for for people in this hall. (coughs) Dedicated practitioners, sincere practitioners, who trust enough to um, make room for the power of this practice to do its dance. And it all starts with the door of suffering. That's the thing. Starts with the door of suffering, all these beautiful qualities of mind start with turning towards suffering with a liberative path. My, my dear, dear Carol Wilson, our, our friend, our colleague, our teacher, my, Carol was a teacher to me for many, many, many years, still is. She, she uh, talks about this moving, moving from wanting awakening to loving Awareness. I'm using loving as a verb, not an adjective, not a description of awareness, but actually loving awareness. You feel the difference of wanting awakening, nibbana or bust, or loving awareness. Loving awareness, trusting awareness, that's um, where the Dharma can show itself. And it's not so much that, that something big thing happens as much as as, um, something stops happening. The process of becoming lets go. The clinging settles back. There's a shifting from the allegiance being to the conceptual framework into um, the citta, the aware, intimate, resonant heart of awareness. Andy Olinsky describes this beautifully. So some of what Matthew was speaking about this morning, the invitation not to just be absorbed in the objects being known, but to feel into the flavor of the knowing itself. Because the knowing itself has a bit of the flavor of freedom. Andy Olinsky used to be a, he used to run the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. He's a beautiful scholar practitioner, and he says, as sati grows, as mindfulness grows our attention, our mental capacity gradually 
is shifted from the objects of attention to the process of being aware. So he's talking about the activity of awareness. This involves an attitude of letting go, of not holding on so much to the object, of abandoning attachment to it. The mind is a dynamic process. When the mind is stuck on what has arisen, it's rigid and limited. But the mind that is letting go moment after moment keeps opening to the emerging flow. That's what we're doing. It's like the ground, the care, is what allows us. The trust is what allows that that fist to begin to open naturally. So it allows us to begin to really uh, hear a different flow of reality, a flow of reality that has the flavor of freedom. It has the flavor of the sacred connection to something much more vast, mysterious, awake, whole, beautiful, really. journey of not being so caught up in the objects of awareness, but, but um, feeling the flavor of awareness. And, you know, the experience of the unconditioned is a moment when the mind takes Nibbana as its object. And this is, a, this is a latent dimension that can be recognized, a latent dimension of reality that can be recognized. We don't, we don't get it. So, you know, in those moments when the thoughts become less, it's like the thoughts become a little bit wispy. <coughs> that sense of, like, what is, what is this, you know? Like, who are you? When the thoughts aren't cranking out the story of who you are. Like, what, what is this? What's here? And Buddha was really, really remarkable because he never, he never said what it is. He only said what it is not so that we wouldn't be fabricating a bunch of stuff. Really, really beautiful. But we're opening through the activity of awareness, guided by these frameworks. You know, you know, we're, we're opening to the sacred, to the mystery, to um, peace, to the innocence Philip was speaking about last night. And suffering is the proximate cause of the development of faith. And right from there, that's where the whole path, that's where the whole path, the whole arc, one breath at a time, that's, that, that's where it starts. I'm going to close and I'm going to read for another time. I'm going to read a second time this, this poem, The Wound of Love by Maya Luna. She's speaking to the, the um, deep flavor of allowing, acceptance, accepting, trusting. Really trusting the nature of our hearts, trusting the path, sincerity. Today I gave up on healing my trauma. I gave up on practicing the skills to become whole. 
Today I gave up on evolving into that ever-elusive better version of myself. Today I submitted to the wound of love. I stopped pointing at it, looking at it, soothing it, tweaking it, finessing it, fixing it, hiding it, polishing it. I stopped this game of separation. I crawled inside the wound and spread it open. I decided to wear it like a gown. I accepted my total and utter failure to be anything else but me. I'll take a moment of quiet together. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma, for your kind attention. Please take some time to walk and we'll gather back at 8.45. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.